You're listening to Reality San Francisco's weekly podcast. For more audio content or information, please visit us at realitysf.com. All right, so turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Um, very difficult text to interpret uh, because Paul doesn't lay out any commands. What Paul does here is he shares pastoral, almost like a pastoral advice. He actually starts the whole section by saying, this is not a command from God. I'm just going to tell you what I, as your pastor, tell you what I'm thinking and how to think through this, how to reimagine what it looks like to be married or single or, um, or widowed or, or engaged or whatever. So let's start at verse 7 and read verse 7 and 8 because I think this is important, uh, linking to what we talked about last week. But then I'm going to jump to verse 25. So if you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. We'll be flipping through a couple things. We'll have an usher bring a Bible forward for you. So raise your hand. We'll give you one for absolutely no charge at all. Free. Free Bibles. All right. So verse 7. I wish that all of you were as I am. Paul was single. Okay. We'll talk about that in a bit. I wish that you were all single like me. That's probably a way you can interpret this. But each of you has your own gift from God. So he's calling singleness a gift. And you would go, no, it's a curse. But Paul would say, no, it's a gift. One has this gift, another has that. Now to the unmarried and to the widows, I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I do. But, verse 9, if they cannot control themselves, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. So Paul says really quickly before we jump to verse 25, Paul says, if you are not married but you're in some sort of relationship where it's so hard for you to stay, to stay sexually pure in your relationship, it'd be better if you just got married than to continue to fight that and to burn with passion. That passion isn't a pejorative word. It's not, a, it's not like a bad word. It's like, you, I'm passionately in love with this person. Well, get married to him then. Well, the time is not right. Paul's like, just get married. Verse 25. Now, about virgins. And this is about anyone who's not married. Uh, this could, this could be translated people who are engaged or people who are, not, um, who are single or, or pledged to be married but not married yet. This is basically people who are not married. To the, about the virgins, I have no command from the Lord, he says. But I, I give a judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Because of the present crisis, I think that it is good for a man to remain as he is. If you, um, are you pledged to a woman? Are you engaged? Do not seek to be released. Do not seek to be out of your engagement. Are you free from such a commitment? Do not look for a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life. And I want to spare you from this. (laughs) Classic Paul. (laughs) Verse 29. What I mean, brothers and sisters, is that the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they do not. Now, don't apply that yet. You don't know what that means. So... To those who mourn as if they did not, to those who are happy as if they were not, to those who buy something as if it was not theirs to keep, to those who use the things of the world as if not engrossed in them, for this world in its present form is passing away. I would like you to be free from concern. That's the whole point of this whole passage. I want you to be free from anxiety is the word. If an unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how how, how can he please the Lord? But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife. And the, in his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or a virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord with, with both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. 
I'm saying this for your own good. Saying all of these, these are not commandments. These are just him, him just kind of riffing on counsel. Not to restrict you. I'm not trying to hem you in. I'm not trying to put a noose around your neck. I, I will, I, but that you may live in the right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. That's the point. If anyone is worried that he might not be acting honorably toward the person he's engaged to, the virgin he's engaged to, and if his passions are too strong and he feels that he ought to marry, he should do as he wants. He's not sinning. They should get married. But if the man who has settled this matter in his own mind, who is under no compulsion but has control over his own will, who has made up his mind not to marry the virgin, the man also does the right thing. So then, he who marries the virgin does right, but he who does not marry does better. A woman is bound to her husband as long as, as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to marry anyone she wishes. But he must belong to the Lord. In my judgment, she is happier if she stays as she is. And I think that I too have the Spirit of God. Let's pray. God, I thank you for this, um, this section in 1 Corinthians. And, and I pray that we would be, um, as people who are married and people who are single whole people, that we would see and find our identity in Christ alone and not in who we're dating and who we're not dating or who we're married to or who we're not married to, God, but our contentment and our joy and our pleasure we found in Christ. And I know, Lord, for the single people, those, those words just sometimes just aggravate more than anything. It's easy for a married person to say to be content in your singleness. And I get that, Lord, so I know that I, I probably don't have um, the words to speak, but you do, Lord. You were single as they were, and as they are. And you can empathize in deeper ways that I, that I can't, and my words fall short. So I ask, Holy Spirit, that you would speak now. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. To follow Jesus, to be baptized as dozens will today, is to say that I have a new identity. To follow Jesus is to say that I have a new identity. And my new identity is, is, is in Christ. The base of that identity is the love of God. The base of my new identity in Christ is God's love for me. The love that God has shown us by Jesus' exemplary life of service, his sacrificial death of substitution, his triumphant resurrection of victory over sin and death, and it was our sin and our death. And because of the love that God has for us, we have a new identity in Christ. Now, why do I start a sermon on singleness on identity? Because this new identity that we have in Christ calls for a new understanding of our relationship with life as we know it. Our new identity calls for a, a, a radical reorientation, a, a completely new understanding of our relationship with life as we know it. A new identity means we have to reimagine life in all of its forms. If you are a Christian in here, if you follow Christ, you have to reimagine life in every one of its forms. You have to reimagine the way that we see everything, success and failure, life and death. Everything now is reordered or reimagined by following Jesus. Now, if you get this, if you understand this right here, you will understand what it means to follow Jesus. You will understand what discipleship means. It is to look at everything now reordered by Christ. Everything. That means we have to reimagine what it means to be human. We have to reimagine what it means to be male, what it means to be female, 
what it means to be sexual. We have to reimagine what it means to be poor and what it means to be rich, what it means to be happy and what it means to be sad. We have to reimagine what it means to be a slave and what it means to be free. We have to reimagine what it means to be gay and what it means to be straight. We have to reimagine what it means to be married and what it means to be single. This is what Paul does in 1 Corinthians. As he writes the letter, he goes, I want you to reimagine your entire life. Those of you that are married, I want you to rethink marriage. Those of you who are committing sexual immorality, I want you to rethink that. Those of you who are single, I want you to rethink that. Those of you who are engaged, I want you to rethink that. He is causing all of us to reorder our lives around Jesus. Who we are, or I should say who we were, is reordered and reimagined by our life in Christ. You have to understand this point. Who we are or who we were, so you could no longer say this as a Christian. Well, who I am, that is no longer something that you can say because who you are is now now brought into your life in Christ and now who you are is different, it's changed. So if you're married, you cannot say that anymore. Well, I'm married. Well, it's different now. You're married differently now. Well, I'm single. You can't say that anymore. You're single differently now. Everything must be reordered by Jesus. And what 1 Corinthians chapter 7 is all about is Paul the Apostle causing this church to reimagine marriage and reimagine divorce and reimagine celibacy and to reimagine singleness in light of being new in Christ, in light of their new existence as Christ followers. As followers of Jesus, we, we live in a new family. You and I are brought into a new family, and this new family has new standards of what success is, has new measures of success. In your traditional family, the one you were born into, their success might mean marrying the right person. This is why mom asks you, who are you dating? This is why mom tries to set you up or something like that. This is why your parents keep pushing for you. You're you're now 34 years old. Why aren't you married yet? Because there's a, there's a standard of success in your family. And that family is, well, you get a good job and you get a, you get a family, you get married to the right person, you have kids. That is success. But in the family of God, success is different. That is not success in the family of God. That is not the measure of success in the family of God. It is not about marrying the right person or having a lot of kids. That is not the measure of success. And evangelicalism, to a large degree, says that. Well, success is this. How then can you reconcile the founder and the savior of our faith not having any family, but a new family? That he said, he and she who does the will of God, that's my brother, my sister, my mother, my mother, my brothers. That's my family. Who was never married, who never had any kids. For we are the family of God. Our traditional family might measure success as a good college degree or a successful career or a big family, but in the family of God, success is something different. And so it's almost like culture shock to become a Christian to some extent. It's a culture, it's a culture shock. The way that we do dating, the way that we do everything has to be seen differently. Life is to be seen differently. We have to see marriage and singleness differently. See, our society and culture measures marriage. The reason why we marry in our society and our culture is for love, We marry for attraction, and we marry for happiness. We marry for love, attraction, and happiness. That's why people get married in our culture. We can't imagine marrying if we're not in love. 
Has anyone, does anyone remember the movie Titanic? Was anyone rooting for the Rose Cal storyline? Like Rose gets on Titanic with Cal, who she's engaged to, out of obligation. Was anyone going, I really hope that Cal and Rose get together? Nobody was rooting for that. Why? Because that was a relationship, that was a marriage of obligation, not love. And in our society, we see obligation and love differently. She was obligated to that person to be married. That wasn't love. Who, who were we all rooting for? Rose and Jack. That was love. That was love in our mind. They're in love. I hope they get married. And that's what made a historical movie about a boat sinking. <laughs> One of the biggest movies of all time. Was that love storyline. It's like her heart, what her heart wants is him. And he wants her and that's love and it should endure forever until he dies at the end of the movie. If you haven't seen it, I'm sorry I ruined it. But that's what we want. Nobody was rooting for the other storyline. Because all of us marry for love. We cannot imagine, though it's a very modern concept, marrying for love. We cannot imagine marrying if we're not in love. And that's how we, are, uh, we moderns love love. We marry for love. We also marry for attraction. Which actually falls under love. And we, all, we have a saying for that. Love at first sight. We can't imagine being in love with someone if we're not attracted to them. And this is not just compatibility. This has to do with physicality. There are people in this church that you wouldn't even give a chance to see if you're compatible with them because you're too hung up on looks. And this is completely sad because this is how our culture dates. This should not be how our church dates. But does it strike anyone odd? Have you thought about this? I'm sure you have, but does it strike anyone odd that the attraction you are basing a decision to be married to someone for the rest of your life is like this two-year window when you're in your 20s or 30s and you have no idea how that person's going to age? <laughs> I'm not trying to make you more nervous, okay? I don't want that to be another question. You're like, well, how are they going to age? I don't know how they're going to age. No one knows. But isn't it funny that you're basing all that traction off of like right now, like a two-year span or two-month span or whatever? It's just, it's just, it's weird. We also marry for happiness. When attraction, compatibility, and love all fall into place, we are happy. And so we marry for happiness. Whenever we do premarital classes, we go around the room. Why are you getting married? A majority of people say, because of what they do to me, how they make me happy. And that's, that's how we moderns marry. We marry for happiness. But we should also see the holes in this, right? I mean, 50, over 50% of marriages end in divorce. And the reason why they end in divorce is because we're not in love anymore. We're not attracted anymore. We're not happy anymore. If you are single in here and are looking for love, attraction, and happiness, maybe you should call the whole system into question. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you have to call the whole system into question. This is what Paul is saying. On the other hand, we live in a world where there are more single people than ever, especially in a city like San Francisco. We put our careers and ourselves before the sacrifice of marriage. It's way easier to use a condom and to sleep around and not be tied down when you're upperly mobile in your career. Marriage is too much of a sacrifice for that. I remember reading an article in 7 by 7 magazine about how San Francisco is a, commitment, a commitment-phobic city. Nobody wants to commit relationally. We don't even like to commit to career paths. We jump around from company to company. We hate commitment. 
San Francisco is Neverland. You don't have to grow up in San Francisco. You can stay 23 forever in San Francisco. But maybe since we're calling all of these things into question, you should call your reason for singleness into question as well. And as a follower of Jesus, you have to call your singleness into question. And this is exactly what Paul does in chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians. He calls it all into question. Marriage, engagement, singleness. He calls it all into question. But what's fascinating about this passage of Scripture is that Paul says, I'm not giving you a command from the Lord. I'm not giving you a command here. Now, the question that happens all the time, the question that we get, I get all the time is, what does the Bible say about dating? I get that a lot from people who are looking to date. 1 Corinthians 7.25, Paul says, Now about virgins, people who are not married, I have no command from the Lord, but I'm going to give you judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. There's no command. Now what does the Bible say about dating? It doesn't say anything about dating. There is no command from God about dating. There's no command of God about how to find a spouse necessarily. There's some rules, there's some guidelines, there's some wise counsel and wisdom. But there's no commandment. Chapter 6 and chapter 7 have commandments. Let me remind them to you, just in case Paul's saying, oh, there's no commandments, or there are commandments. He laid them out. Here they are. Here are the commandments in chapter 6 and 7. Flee porneia. Run from sexual immorality. Sexual immorality is anything outside of Genesis 2, 24 and 25. A husband and wife were both naked and they were not ashamed. Anything outside of that is porneia. Paul says, run from that. Another command we have is to have sex as married couples. That was last week. Married couples, you should have had a great week this week. (laughs) If you weren't here last week, listen to the podcast. (laughs) But this is the command that Paul says. Married couples, you are married. Your body doesn't belong to you. It belongs to Jesus and your spouse. You guys have a right to have sex with one another. Do that. That's a command, another command. And and this is a very important one wrapped up in what it means to be married. And this is so important. We'll talk about this next week. No divorce, command. He actually says, the Lord said, not me, but the Lord says this, stay with the person you're married to. But here's the counsel. That's the commands. Here's the counsel about dating, about engagement, and about singleness. Paul says, I don't have any commands. I have wise pastoral advice, but that's it. I can't point to a verse. I can't point to, even I'm, I'm writing. I can't, even po- I can't even point to myself. I can't give you one because there's not one. I'm going to give you wise, sound advice. The point here is that Paul doesn't want to come to any moral conclusions on whether to marry or stay single. Whether you marry or stay single, you have not sinned. That's what he says. Hey, if you're engaged and you're like, hey, I'm not gonna, I don't want to marry you because, because of the present crisis. We'll get to that in a second. Paul says, you haven't sinned. You're like, I want to get married because I'm like, I'm so passionately in love with this person and I cannot wait to sleep with them. Then Paul says, you're not, gonna, you're not sinning, get married. Therefore, the person who gets married or doesn't get married, you have not sinned. Paul is saying, listen, both ways are okay. Now, one way he leans towards, remain single. He's leaning towards that heavily. But he says, I have no command. The point of this, the point of the council is to keep the church from anxiety. Isn't this great? First thing that we ask, if you're single, that you ask is, what does the Bible say about dating? And it doesn't say anything. Second thing is, a lot of people who are single are filled with anxiety. When will I get married? When will I find the right person? When will this happen? When will someone sweep me off my feet? When will I meet the, when? How do I do it? And you're filled with anxiety. And the whole reason why Paul is writing this is that you would be free from concern, that you would be free from anxiety. 
Look at verse 32. I would like you to be free from concern. This is why he's writing all of this. I want you to be free from anxiety. Now, how does this text free us from anxiety? Single people. Look at verse 26 through 28. Paul says, because of the present crisis, I think that it's good for a man not to, remain as, to remain as he is. Are you pledged to a woman? Do not seek to be released. Are you free from such a commitment? Do not look for a wife. But if you marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life, and I want to spare you. I want to spare you from the troubles of being married. Now, nobody knows what the present crisis is. Nobody. Every commentator, every scholar has a different opinion. Every historian has a different opinion. Some people say, well, it was severe famine that was going on around Corinth at that time. Other commentators say there was no famine there, so it wasn't famine. Other people say it was persecution, but others say, well, there was no persecution at that time. That was later. Other people say, well, had the end of days sort of feel a rapture. Paul thought that the rapture of the church or whatever was going to happen at any moment. Now, what is it? Nobody knows. But what Paul says, because of this crisis, if you're engaged, stay engaged. If you're single, don't look for a spouse. But if you do get married, or you, or you do get married as you are single, and you find someone, you get engaged, you haven't sinned. If you're engaged to someone, you get married, you haven't sinned. But then he says this, listen, I'm not going to lie. Those of you who marry will face many troubles in this life. And there are already troubles going on in this present crisis. Don't add to trouble. Don't get married. Many commentators and scholars believe because of this, Paul was married. And his wife either left him or she died. And what he's saying is, listen everyone, I've been married. I've been to the mountaintop. I've seen fire and I've seen rain. Stay single. <laughs> Trust me. Stay. A lot of people think that, that he was married and he writes that. He's like, I've done that. It'd be better if you just trust me. Better for you to stay single. This is strange to read from Paul because elsewhere in Scripture, like in Ephesians 5, he treats marriage like the closest thing that we have in our relationship with, to, to Jesus. Like the, the, the closest mirror image of our relationship with Christ is marriage. It's like he can't talk about marriage without talking about who we are as the bride of Christ. He's stoked on marriage. It's glorious. So what's happening here? What's happening here, plain and simple is that Paul is affirming the single life. Paul is saying that the single life is a good life. And not just the single life, but the single celibate life. That's a good life. And this was countercultural in Paul's day. Marriage and family meant you had a future. Marriage and family meant you had a hope. Marriage and family meant you had an identity. In Judaism, which Paul was, he calls himself a Jew of Jews, in Judaism, marriage and family were a command of God and the way that blessings came into your life. Actually, in the New Encyclopedia of Judaism, under celibacy, it reads this. Marriage is a commandment in Jewish tradition and celibacy is deplored. Marriage was everything. What Paul is writing here is singleness is actually a good way of life. Singleness as a way of life in following God is somewhat distinctive to New Testament Christianity. Jesus even says this. If you have a Bible with you, please turn back to Matthew chapter 19. It's a very interesting verse of Scripture. This, Matthew is the only one who mentions this part of what Jesus says. And I want you to know that I take 
the words of Christ very seriously. Um, they are bread and they are life. So when Jesus says this, I want you to read this as if it's like to you. If it, especially if you're single, if it's maybe a part of your heart that you need to hear these words of Christ to you. I just sensed as I was reading these things, you need to hear this in a bit, maybe a different way. Now, let me, let me give you some background before I read it. Is already, okay, don't read ahead. Eyes up here, okay? <laughs> Everyone's already read it, huh? Don't read it. Not joking. That's a command, okay? <laughs> a couple, a, a little bit of background. In, in here, the word eunuchs is used. Now, this is a very harsh word. I don't know why Jesus used this word, but he did. Eunuchs were castrated men who went into service of a master, giving up their possibility of family and a future because their future was tied to their family in those days. They're basically saying, I don't have a family. I don't have a future. I'm tying my future and my hope to you, master. That's what eunuchs did. They either did that voluntarily or they did that by, by force. That's what eunuchs were. Jesus kind of hijacks this word and uses it to mean people who were not married. Strange, I know, but I think his point gets across beautifully. Also, what happens is these, these rulers and leaders go up to Jesus and ask him about, about marriage and about divorce. And Jesus says, there, is, there should be no divorce at all. Moses gave you divorce, you, but your heart was hard. Don't get divorced for any reason except for one. Marital unfaithfulness, sexual morality, that's the only way that you get divorced. Other than that, don't get divorced. And they got divorced for any reason at that time. The disciples turned to Christ and were like, whoa, that was a really hard word what you said. It's probably better not to be married if that's, if that's the rule of marriage. And then Jesus says this. Verse 11. Jesus replied, taking into account what eunuch means, not everyone can accept this word. What I'm about to say is really hard. He says, but only for those to those whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who are born that way. And there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others. And there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. In a, in a discussion about marriage, Jesus then talks about the single life. Jesus talks about people who never marry and will never have a family. And the way he does it, he uses this language to speak about those who are not married. And he uses, the, he uses two categories. The first category he uses are the first two eunuchs he mentioned. He says that it's an involuntary singleness. The third one, he says, is a voluntary singleness. So the first two, he says, these first two are involunt- involuntary and this last one is voluntary. Of the first category, Jesus says, there are people who will not get married because of the way that they were born. Making marriage impossible or inadvisable. There are people who, because of the way they were born, marriage is not going to be a reality for you. The second category are those who are single because of others. Maybe a lack of an available marriage partner. But because of others... They're not married. And the third, and this is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, are those who stay single voluntarily for the sake of serving the king and the kingdom. There are those, there are some who won't be married because you can't. There might be, that might be hard to accept. You will never be married. But Jesus doesn't lie to you. He acknowledges you. He was a single man his whole life. You hear people, pastors, me, I've said this many times, it's not good for man to be alone. 
And that, that because you know that I, I won't ever be married for whatever circumstance, you hate that. But the greatest man who ever lived, the wisest, most, most fully human person who ever lived was single. So that the application of it's not good for man to be alone cannot, the first application cannot be marriage. It must be something else. Jesus acknowledges that it's difficult to accept. This word is difficult to accept, that there are people in this room that will never be married. The second group are those who are not married because of the lack of someone who will marry you or some, uh, an available marriage partner. And Jesus also acknowledges that. And there are, are some of you remaining single for the sake of the kingdom of God. And you need to consider this. You consider, if you're single like God, are you, am I single because do you want me to devote my entire life to the kingdom of God? My entire life. And can I do things single way better than I could do things married? And do you want this for the rest of my life? Some of us need to really deal with this. Now, how can all of this be true and right and good? Well, go back to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 7, let me read to you what Paul says. Because this is a whole different sort of paradigm shift for the followers of Christ. Paul says in verse 29, what I mean, brothers and sisters, is that the time is short. We got one life. And we live for completely different reasons now as Christians. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they do not have wives. That's weird. But then he says, but those who mourn as if they did not, those who are happy as if they were not, those who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep, those who use the things of the world as if not engrossed in them, for this world and its present, present form is passing away. The time is short. The world as we know it is passing away. The kingdom of God is breaking in. Therefore, Paul says, there's a new way I want you to live. And this paradigm is called as if not. The as if not paradigm if you're married, live as if not. If you're single, as if not. If you buy something as if it was not yours. If you are happy, as if not. This is a way that Paul is framing the Christian worldview. Paul is not discouraging from buying and selling. He's not discouraging marriage. That would go against what he just said. He's not discouraging being, uh, uh, being happy or even mourning. As Christians who live in this world, we are expected to continue doing such things. But as followers of Jesus... We do not do it to possess. So what Paul is saying is this. We buy, but we do not buy to possess a life. We do not purchase to buy an identity. We do not purchase to buy a sense of self, a sense of meaning. We don't buy like the world buys, like our culture purchases. We buy completely different. We do not marry to find an identity. We do not marry to find a, a messiah. We do not marry like people marry. We do not mourn like those without hope. We do not, we're not happy like those who live for a pursuit of happiness. We are single, but we are not single like people who have no family. Because the kingdom of God is broken in, it changes everything. It changes the way that we're married as if not. I'm married happily, but it's not my life. Christ is my life. And I'm single, but that's not my life. And it's not like I don't have a family. I have a family. And they're sitting to my right and to my left right now. 
I buy things. But not to hoard and possess. I buy things and I'm open-handed with them because my life is not in this world. My life is in Christ. And I mourn. But I don't mourn with that hope because God's going to bring all things to fullness, to consummation. He's going to bring shalom back. And I'm happy, but I don't live for the pursuit of happiness. Everything changes. We live as if not. As if these things do not determine my existence. Christ determines my existence. And when that happens, I'm free from anxiety. See, I think that there's, there's things that single people say to themselves or well-intending people say to singles that are not helpful. You might have heard this. As soon as you're satisfied with God alone, he'll bring someone into your life. Have you ever heard that? As soon as, just be content in God alone and then he'll bring someone into your life. As though anyone, everyone married is satisfied with God alone. Like married couples, oh, you must have been satisfied in God alone. That's why you're married now. How is that going for you? Any married couple will tell you no. Like the goal isn't to be satisfied in God alone so that you get a spouse. The goal is to be satisfied in God alone, period. Satisfied in God alone as a single, as married. And also, and when you think this paradigm, you think that God's blessings are earned by your contentment. Oh, I gotta be content, I gotta be content. Why? So God can give me a spouse. And then, let's say you get to this place where you're like perfectly content and God brings someone in your life. You're like, I don't know if that person matches my level of contentment. Like I was really content and they're like a, a C. I'm waiting for an A to match my contentment. That is not a healthy model. Be satisfied in God alone for God alone. As you're married and as you're single. So if you're like, well, I need to be really content or else God won't bring. That's not true. God could bring someone in your life in your most uncontent moment ever. I don't know. God, the way God works. The way God's worked in my life. I mean, even like if I look at that quote, that wasn't me when I met my wife at all. It was quite opposite. Our goal is to be satisfied in God alone. Please stop attaching your married life or your single life to contentment. You can be content in Christ in any season that you're in, married or, or, or single. Another quote, another thing that people try to helpfully say to single people are before you can marry someone wonderful, the Lord has to make you someone wonderful. Instead of like looking for someone wonderful, Look to be someone wonderful. Okay. As though everyone married was made wonderful by God before they were married. That's not true at all. But it also grants, it also says that God grants marriage to only those who are sanctified. Like when people are engaged, you look at them and go, oh, you must be sanctified. You must have been wonderful. God was done with your wonderfulness and therefore he gave you a spouse. And you too. That's, that's not why God brings people together. Underneath these statements, there's this understanding that you are not yet fully formed as a human and thus not really ready for marriage, as if marriage was the highest goal of human existence. It's not. Christ is. Then how do you live a single life? Paul would advocate for a life that's completely devoted to Christ. He says in verse 35, I am saying this for your own good, not to restrict you but that you may live in a right way, an undivided devotion to the Lord. 
Sing, single people tend to pour themselves into relationships, maybe even sexual relationships, over and over again, romantic relationships over and over again, because they have not settled down yet. And so I'm not settled down yet, so I can throw myself in all these romantic relationships. Or single people pour themselves into their career. I'm not married yet, so I'm going to pour myself into my career. Paul is saying, pour yourself into undivided devotion to God. If you're single, undivided devotion to God. Are you supposed to have a job? Sure. Are you supposed to romantically see people? Okay, yes. But is that to be your single devotion? No, it's to be to God. Guys, you don't understand if you're single in here. You have the capacity and the capability and the openness in your life to do and go wherever God calls you to do and go. My wife and I do not have kids yet. And I, I've shared this from this, this stage many times in, this, in um, the other place that we were at in the Swedish American home when we were going through Genesis, that this has been a source for us of a lot of um, battle and confusion and we've wanted kids for some time and we can't have kids yet. And this time, I have to realize, and I, I, where I was, as I was studying this, I read a beautiful quote from a book and sent it to my wife through text message this week about our meaning as a married couple does not come from kids. And your meaning as a single person does not come from you finding a spouse. My wife and I can do things as a married couple who don't have kids that we can never do. We have the flexibility and the time to do things, to be completely devoted to God before we have kids. In the same way, single people, you have a way that I don't be married that you can be singly devoted to Christ in a way that people who are married and people who have kids cannot. And you can do that. And Paul, that's just, this is what Paul is advocating for, to be completely devoted to Christ. Another thing that we can do as dating couples in the church is to date differently. The dating scene in the church is virtually the same outside the church. At least the way you attract someone is. In the church, it's the same outside the church where it's about looks. It's about financial and social status. We are looking for somebody beautiful in the most superficial way. But what if, like we were talking about last week, if the marriage, if the goal of marriage is to see God make the other person holy, what if we started to date like that? What if we started to look for a spouse like that? What if we were to fall in love, especially with the glorious thing God is doing in someone else's life? And the reason why you're marrying them is to see you're partnering with God to bring that out. There was a movie that my wife and I saw a couple weeks ago, Terrence Malick's new film called To the Wonder, and not a lot of people liked it. I absolutely loved it. It was basically a sermon on love. And in there, there was a priest who would keep giving sermons. The whole thing was about love and this juxtaposition between an, a, love that's, that's, uh, a love that's about obligation, and that was a priest to God who wasn't married, who was married to God, and a couple who were passionately in love. And it was like this love triangle. And it went back and forth, and like Terrence Malick does in all of his films, it's very scenic. And Anyway, um, in there, they kept cutting to the priest preaching a sermon. And some of the best sermons I've ever heard were in this movie. And he said, and this is a loose quote because I, I didn't write it down. when I was, in the, I was too entranced by the movie to write it down. But he said this, and it was profound. It stuck with me. It really changed the way I, I, I've seen 
even my own marriage. He said, the Bible says, husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church. And this is in the movie, The Priest, and the movie. The Bible says, husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church. And the priest comments, to love is not to find your wife beautiful, but to make your wife beautiful. We're trying to find the perfect spouse. That is not the point of marriage. The point of marriage is a lot more profound than that, is to make the person. There's something you partner with God in in making that person beautiful. This is what Christ does when he marries us. He doesn't find us beautiful. He makes us beautiful. This is the frustration in early people who are, 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 are young couples who are married. The frustration is like, I thought you were perfect and I was perfect. We we're perfect together. And they, real, they don't realize how much work it is for the rest of your lives to bring about the beauty in that other person. You're partnering with God in doing that. So the challenge is this. What Jesus' kingdom does for the traditional culture that says marriage is everything, it starts by saying that its founder and savior was single. And single life is an amazing way to live. But for different reasons than the, the way San Francisco says the reason for being single is an amazing way to live. To be completely devoted to God. And what Jesus does for our modern individualistic culture that says Jesus is that Jesus created a new surrogate family through the gospel. And this family is even stronger than that of one's physical earthly family. If you are single in here and you feel alone, you are not alone. This is your family. The church is your family. And we need to start acting like family. Married couples, you need to act like this church is your family. You don't ditch your family once you get married. Go, no, this is my family now. No, this is your family still. And this will be your family for all eternity. Single people, this is your family. This is the family of God. The whole point in Paul's writing is Christ is our life. Let me close with the last quote I'll read from The Holy Longing. I've quoted Ronald Rollheiser every week and his chapter on sexuality is brilliant. At the end, he talks about the single life. And he says this, nothing in this life will ever fully complete us. Can you please hear that? Nothing in this life will ever fully complete us. We have to give up our messianic expectations and demands. Hence, we must stop expecting that somewhere, sometime, in some place, we will meet just the right person, the right situation, or the right combination of circumstances, circumstances so that we can be completely happy. We will stop demanding that our spouses, family, friends, and jobs give us what only God can give us, clear-cut, pure joy. If you are looking in your hunt for a spouse, a perfect spouse, what only God can give you, you're going to end up bitter and lonely. Or you'll end up marrying you, who you think is the right person only to be married bitter and lonely. The things that we are all looking for are only found in Jesus. And that's it. And so this is what I want to do. As we close, I want to pray for us. And then I want to invite you to respond to God. But I want you to respond to God in a way that says, Christ, you are my life. 
And so single people, you might need to bring your single life before the altar of God and go, finding the perfect spouse is not my life. Christ, you are my life. Married people need to bring their status as a married couple or as a family. My family and my life and my marriage is not my life. Christ, you are my life. And so I'll be married as if it did not define me. And I'll be single as if it did not give me an identity. Because my identity comes from Christ and Christ alone. Let's pray. God, I thank you. Thank you for your word, God. Thank you for the way that all of these things, uh, marriage and singleness and God, you identified with them all and you speak to them all. So God, I pray for the people in, in this church right now that might sense that they're alone. And the turmoil of trying to find the spouse is just, is just wrecking them, Lord. They don't know what method to employ. The pursue and keep pursuing, keep pursuing because that worked with their friends or just fast from all dating because that worked for another friend or just try to be content in Jesus because that worked for someone else or move out of the city because that worked for someone else. I, I can see, Lord, that just trying to figure all that out is so hard. And so we give up all those pursuits And we say, Lord, we have no idea if you're calling us to be married, how you're going to bring that person to our lives. But change the way we see people. And change the way that we date. And change the way that we're married. Change the way that we're single. God, there is no command here. There's just godly advice. And I pray that, I pray that the advice that we'd all walk away with, that I find my place in Christ alone. In Jesus' name, amen.